You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for July 2017. Today's episode is titled, Meekness of Wisdom. The solution to every problem is the same, wisdom. The best problem solvers are, therefore, wise people. How do we recognize a wise person? In other words, what would be some key indicators? Wise people are recognized by the excellence of their attitudes and actions. They are divinely blessed people who build their lives based on a sound knowledge of God and therefore enjoy the favor of God in every area of life, including their work. Such people are the only ones who consistently enjoy divine favor and therefore consistently deliver excellent value. Consequently, organizational leaders should seek to build their organizations with wise people, people whose conduct displays the internal virtue of meekness of wisdom. Organizations built on this standard will deliver excellent value that will bless all stakeholders. An excellent value is a key predicate to enduring success. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Meekness of Wisdom. Well, this morning we want to talk about the the book of James. We've been studying that book now for uh, for some time, and we want to focus in on chapter three, verses thirteen through eighteen. Uh, our topic is uh, wisdom, and specifically, we're looking at the wisdom that comes from God in contrast to the wisdom of the world. So, let me read the text, make some introductory comments, and then we'll get into it. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where wisdom, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorderly and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 in the ESV. Well, just some introductory comments. Um, living under the Lordship of Christ, which is a major theme of this book, is living in reality, not in deception. So what's, what James is doing here with this early epistle, arguably perhaps the earliest of the epistles that are included in the New Testament, is unfolding what it means to live under the Lordship of Christ to a group of professing Christians who are Jews by birth, uh, but they're dispersed throughout uh, Asia and the, and the Greco-Roman Empire. They've been trained probably by the synagogue systems that rose up by, after the dispersion happened. Of course, the dispersion happened because of the rejection of God by the Jewish people. So that was part of the judgment of God upon them. So when they were dispersed, they needed a way to still, some way or another, stay connected to their Jewish heritage, and the synagogue system became the way to do that. So that was a place where they not only kept tradition going, but they were taught, and they were taught the Old Testament scripture, what they called the graphe. That was the Greek word. Graphe means the writings. And literally, it was the writings, because there was no other writings like this. It was the writings that came from God, and they were to govern their lives. So they were well-trained in the Old Testament Scripture. So James, in this epistle, doesn't spend time reviewing that or going back and establishing truth. He assumes that they already know. 
he is going to assume that they're already well-knowledged, well-versed in basic theology and doctrine, and now he's going to focus on application. He even assumes they know a whole lot about Christ and the reality of the revelation of Christ that, that we have unfolded in the New Testament, even though the New Testament canon wasn't actually formulated until the 4th century, 4th century A.D. So the, the graphe at this point was the Old Testament and the oral tradition of Christ at this point. So James launches into this discussion a very practical homily of how to walk with God, how to live out the Christian life under the Lordship of Christ. And to be a Christian is to be under the Lordship of Christ. Sometimes I hear the term committed Christian, and my first thought is that that is a redundant term. Because if, if a person is Christian, he has to be committed. That's the definition of being a Christian. It's like um, a disciple. A disciple is a disciplined learner. He is a Christian. If you're a Christian, you should be a disciple. And you might say someone is a Christian and he is a disciple. No, a Christian is a disciple. And so when we see what, what Scripture really tells us about the truth, we realize that Christianity is a serious, serious lifestyle. It's a serious choice of walking with Christ under his lordship. It's living in reality with God, not in deception, which is generally where the world lives. As we go through the book, you'll notice that there is a clear assumption that God is sovereignly in charge of his universe. At the same time, man is responsible. The focus of the book, though, is not on sovereignty but on responsibility, but the, the sovereignty of God is clearly assumed. And you see this in a text like James 1, verses 18 through 22, which says, Of his own will, referring to God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That was a sovereign work of God. And, and so he just knows you know that. He's not going to dwell on it, expand on it. He just reminds you of that truth and then launches into, well, what's your responsibility? How do you respond to the reality of the sovereign work of God in your life that regenerated you, brought you life. Now you have a responsibility to now receive that truth and live that truth out. So there's not any tension at all between the sovereignty and human responsibility, even though to us we don't see how they could be both true. It seems like one or the other is true, not both, but the Scripture, James as well as other writers of Scripture, equally assume these two truths to be true. Faith without works is dead is one of the great principles of the book. And of course it's focused on in chapter two. And the, 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 I think the thesis of this is simple. And that is whatever it is you really believe inside of you, whatever you really believe will be manifested in how you live in your words and your works, your actions. So when he says faith without works is dead means that when you say you believe something, but you don't live it, then that is unreality. That is deception. So it's just another way to say you're in deception. Now, I know people will jump up and say, what about, you know, actors, pretenders? They're called hypocrites. Well, yeah, you can act and you can pretend for a while, but eventually the truth will come out. In the end, whatever you really believe inside will be manifested by how you live, a major theme in this book. And if you don't recognize that as a believer, if you don't recognize your responsibility to obey the word of God, James tells us in the first chapter, you are in deception. 
a Christian, by definition, will be obeying the Word of God. And you have somebody that says they're a Christian and they're not obeying the Word of God. There's nothing in Scripture that I know of that you can point to and give them assurance that they truly are a Christian. Real Christians do obey the Word of God. That's a validation that they are Christians. Obedience doesn't make them a Christian. Obedience reveals that they are a Christian. What made them a Christian was the sovereign work of God through the Holy Spirit to redeem them, regenerate them. And now that same Spirit empowers them to obey God, empowers them to express faith in Christ. So things that many people point to will be acts of work. These are acts of obedience that reflect the reality of the sovereign work of God first in a person's life. We have imperatives in this text. These imperatives are commands. Again, it's a a stress on the reality that Christianity does not eliminate law. We think law is no longer in force. Well, law, the law doesn't go away. Christ is the one that obeyed the law perfectly when we could never obey it perfectly. And now he's the one that paid the price, and he is our substitute to satisfy the, the righteous requirements of God. But we still have an obligation to obey. And the law, whether it's the Old Testament law or the imperatives you see in the book of James here, These guide us into alignment with the will and ways of God. So imperatives are commands, things that we should be obeying. And in James, he's got about 60 uses of the Greek imperative mood uh, here that gives us a sense of the commands that that James is trying to convey to these early believers. And the immediate context of James chapter 3 is talking about the tongue, and in particular in the few verses prior to verse 13, he's talking about the hypocrisy uh, that with which people sometimes use their tongue. They claim to be Christians, and yet they will curse a people and bless people both. And he says, that's not possible. You can't curse people and bless them both. And then he uses a series of illustrations from general revelation, makes an argument from general revelation. Well, a, a a source of water can't be both fresh and bitter. It's going to be one or the other. And then he talks about how a tree can't bear a different kind of fruit. A fig tree can't bear, you know, apples, or apple an apple tree can't bear bananas, things like that. So he's making points from both Scripture and from general revelation that, you know, whatever it is that's going on inside of you will be manifested by your words. And if you think you can cover that up by one time speaking, you know, as you should, and the next time speaking as you shouldn't, that will not work. Because the truth is what's going on inside of you will be manifested by your words. So now he launches into a discussion of wisdom. He starts out with a with a comment here about who is wise. Who's wise and understanding among you? Now, this term for understanding is a very interesting word. It's only used one time in the New Testament. It refers to intelligence. At least that's what the commentators seem to think. So the question is, who is wise? And a wise person is someone who has skill to live life well. And who has intelligence? Who's smart among you? And basically, it's a challenge. Challenge him. You think you're wise and intelligent? Well, here's what you need to do. By your good conduct that you need to demonstrate that your works are done in the meekness of wisdom. 
Now, this word here, good, is the Greek word kalos, which refers to external manifestations of goodness. It's the fruit of a good heart. Remember, in Greek, you have two words for good. you got agathos, which refers to internal goodness, and kalos, which refers to external goodness. So he's saying his focus here is on the external display of, of goodness. Goodness is an attribute of God, so it's an external display of God's attributes in your life. And he specifically uses this word here, conduct, or a lifestyle. It's the way that you live life. Everything in your life should reflect God. It should reflect the characters and traits of God. And the imperative mood here is used in this word, let him show. It's a reference to demonstrate. Today we might say prove, give evidence to. You know, in other words, gather data in your life to demonstrate, you know, the evidence of the character and qualities of God that are operative in your life. And this word works here, this is a general word for work, refers to all kinds of activity. Any kind of activity, you know, you know, whether it's at home or in the workplace or in the public square, in your private life, in the community of believers, all of the in all these areas you do things, and those things are called works, the ergon of your life. And then he qualifies and says, what, what should be driving you is the meekness of wisdom. Now, this word meekness is very interesting. Um, Vine has a definition of meekness that is different from what I've, what I've seen other people say. Many people will talk about meekness as being power under control, things like that, being gentle. Uh, but what, what uh, Vine says I think is very fascinating. He says meekness is believing in and therefore living according to the goodness of God in all circumstances. Now, wow, that is a powerful definition. When everything I'm doing is reflecting a belief in the goodness of God, no matter how bad the circumstances may be, that is an incredible sense. you know. And when you have that sense, if that's what he's talking about here, it's, it really elevates this dramatically. You know, wisdom, true wisdom, really has to function in this reality of meekness as defined by Vine here. This is very consistent, I think, with what he says in chapter 1 where he uses the word meekness again. There he talks about receiving with meekness the implanted word, that word that was put into you by the sovereign grace of God that brings forth salvation in you, that regenerated you and brought you to life in Christ and took care of your sin problem, you are to receive that word. There's a sovereign hand of putting that word in you, and then there is your responsibility to receive that word. You receive it with meekness, and that means I'm always thinking about the goodness of God in every situation. That is a fascinating way to see this. He goes on to say, but if you have bitter jealousy, and that word for jealousy is really the word for zeal, and jealousy uh, or zeal is not a negative term. Now, jealousy to us is almost always a negative term, but zeal is not. And a zeal can be very positive. For example, when Jesus cleansed the, the temple of the money changers who were obviously operating in ways that were not honoring to the Lord, he, it says he had zeal. He was zealous for his, the house of the Lord to be pure, to be a place of prayer. So that was a good sense of zeal. 
There's a bad sense of zeal. For example, Romans talks about zeal without knowledge. That's not good. And here we have a bad sense of it, and that is bitter, bitter jealousy or bitter zeal. When you are zealous for yourself, your will and your ways, and you're, you're, you're really intense about it, and you're maybe even angry about it, that is really inappropriate. And then he goes on to add, in addition, selfish ambition. And that word for selfish ambition really means to, uh, means uh, electioneering. Now, electioneering is when I'm trying to rig everything to my benefit. I'm trying to make everything happen so that my will and my ways gets done. So when you have this kind of bad attitudes and bad motives going on in your hearts, he says then, do not boast. This, again, is another imperative. And do not be false to the truth, another imperative. Again, these are these are commands he's given. You know, the idea of boasting is all about self-commissioning. It's all about putting yourself forward. It's trying to say, look at me, look at what I can do, and self-declaring. Of course, we know from the example in First Kings chapter 1 about Adonijah when he self-commissioned. He put himself forward to be king when his, when his father David was on his deathbed. And, of course, um, his father David found out that he had done this, and it did not go well for Adonijah. So self-commissioning always backfires. And then the other side of this, when you start boasting, what happens is you're denying the truth. You are, you are in deception. This interesting, this word for false, it's a, it's a word in the Greek language that English gets a word from it, and it's the word pseudo. Uh, the Greek word is pseudomai, and we get an English word pseudo from it, which means false. You're false. You're denying the truth. See, fault being false to the truth is denying the truth. And of course, it's important to recognize that in Christianity, we believe there is truth. In fact, we call it the truth. And in the Greek language, the definite article is used there. It's literally the truth. So whenever you're living with this bad motivation internally, and it's being manifested now by your self-commissioning and denial of the truth, you are deep in deception. And that is a very bad place to be. And people today think that's wisdom, and that is false wisdom. That is pseudo-wisdom. That is worldly wisdom. It is not God's wisdom. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's interesting, the, the, the adjectives he uses to try to describe this wisdom. Earthly refers to, you know, of this physical universe. Unspiritual refers to to beings that have breath in them. That would be like human beings. And demonic, of course, is spirit beings who actually inhabit this earth and try to torment us and try to influence us into aligning with them instead of aligning with God. This this is the wisdom, the wisdom that comes from that mix of cultural thinking, individual deception, and demonic activity. You can say the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a threefold cord here of rebellion against God. For where jealousy, and again, this is that word zeal, this is a negative sense of the word, and selfish ambition, electioneering, exists, there will be disorder or confusion. And vile, which means unethical, ethically bad practices. This word practice here is the Greek word pragma. Pragma, we get pragmatic from that. And, in fact, we get our pragmatic best practices that drive most of people's lives today. 
So we say these lead to vile best practices, which that's a, that's a startling thought because the world, particularly the business world today, takes great pride on, on being driven and governed by what they call best practices. The reality is many of these best practices are not best practices because they, what makes something a best practice is when it is consistent with the word of God. When it lines up with the will and ways of God, then it is a best practice. If it's a pseudo best practice it is a, that does not line up with the will and ways of God, it's just deception. But the wisdom from above. Now we're going to contrast the wisdom from the earth that is deceptive to the true wisdom that comes from God. It's first of all pure. And this word for pure comes from the word that means sacred or holy. It's set apart. It's different from the world. It's not worldly thinking. We've talked on this call about a number of people who have have come to realize that the thinking that they're in is not consistent with God. And that leads to a block. And we have to deal with that bad thinking and take on holy, godly thinking. And that's a challenge for all of us to do. But that is what we're called to do. He goes on to say this wisdom is peaceable. That is, it brings peace. Now, this does not mean there won't be conflict. But it means that what happens when you are walking in godly wisdom, you know, you are walking toward harmony with God and peace with God. And when you are in harmony with God, you'll probably have war with others. But with God, you have peace. So this is peaceable. It brings peace between you and God. It is gentle. And something as gentle as fair, it's equitable, it's forbearing. It's open to reason. That is, it's logical. Have you noticed that the people of the world, many times who are really rebelling against God, they can get very illogical. Well, the people of God who are walking in the will and ways of God will be very logical because God is a very rational being. Our ability to be rational comes from him. And sadly, those in rebellion against him many times distort it. It's full of mercy and good. Now the word good is not focused on the the fruit, the kalos. It's focused on the internal goodness, the transformation. Hopefully you see the themes throughout all of this is that what's driving your actions, your words and your actions, is the internal reality in you. You know, it's another way to say it is you how you think is how you live. How you believe is how you live. Your theology is the basis of your life. Internal reality drives external reality. So the real root issues are never symptoms. They're always internal reality. And it's so easy for us to uh, to get focused on the symptoms. So we've got to really guard against that. Uh, yesterday we were having a conversation at lunch, and there was a person that commented that uh, he had some enemies out there, and they had decided to put a web page up to talk about how bad he was. and um, one of the guys around the table, his comment was, well, if you ask him to, you know, can I, if he, you could buy his website. And of course, what he was trying to do was just work on the symptom. And the reality is what you need to do is work on what's going on inside that person that drove him to put up that website. That's where you need to be praying and seeking the Lord for wisdom and divine strategy for how to resolve whatever that conflict is and whatever bad theology is driving that person. That's where the root is. And if you don't work on the root and you start coming up with symptom things, you wind up things like, well, I'll go buy his website, which, okay, you can do that. And he'll just turn around and go get another website and post it someplace else. Are you going to go buy that one then? 
And that's what happened with symptoms. Symptoms never really solve anything. It's root issues that actually solve and change things. And so God, God works at that level. The wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. It is impartial. That is, it is without insincerity. It's kind of a double negative at the way I'm saying that, which is probably not good English, but that's what the, I got that from the commentators. So I guess they need to be corrected on that point. But impartial means that you're objective. You really are able to look at the facts correctly and have a godly perspective because only God has the right perspective. It's sincere. That is without hypocrisy. And it produces this harvest of righteousness, this fruit of righteousness. And it then leads to harmony, which implies equal yoking. So this is what happens when you really press into godly wisdom. Within the community of God, it produces the incredible harvest of harmony and peace and now unity and ability to function well. So this is the the basic thesis of what he's trying to say here in this text. And let me just give you some theological points to consider. A reminder here that spiritual reality drives physical reality. That is just so foundational, so fundamental, and yet it is so foreign to us. We are not used to thinking at that level. We have to keep challenging ourselves to really ask in every situation, what is the theology driving this situation? And if I really want to affect change here in this situation, I have to pray at that level and work at that level. At the very minimum, you can pray at that level, and sometimes you may have an ability to work at that level. The next point is that true wisdom is a timeless universal principle. In other words, the wisdom of God, it's true, it's the same everywhere, all the time, in every place, regardless of situations. God's wisdom is always timeless universal. So it's a TUP, a timeless universal principle. And that's what we want to convey is God's TUP to people. That's what will bless them. Reminder that there's no conflict in James's mind between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He believes both of them are totally true, and he sees no conflict at all. And finally, on the theological point, it's interesting here that he mentions two of the three great philosophical discussion points that that preoccupy many philosophers and have for over the centuries, and that is the source of wisdom, truth, and beauty. You know, where does that come from, and how do you define those things? Well, James here very clearly has definitions of wisdom and truth. He doesn't really address beauty so much here, but he does address wisdom and truth. And the wisdom, the true wisdom, comes from God, who is the source also of all truth. So he is really providing an answer to what philosophers wrestle with and spend a lot of their time trying to come up with answers to. Well, let me give you some application here. Uh, first of all, I've synthesized the imperatives in this section into two commands. Now, and I think these represent the sense of this teaching. The lifestyle of a disciple of Jesus Christ should be composed of works performed in meekness, that is, always believing that God is working good in every situation, that comes from true wisdom. So that is how we are to live, a life, a meek life of wisdom before God. The second command is recognize that true wisdom and clearly distinguish it from worldly wisdom. True wisdom does not boast other than in Christ and does not deny the truth. 
True wisdom does not seek self-interest. True wisdom and worldly wisdom are mutually exclusive. Now, that doesn't mean that worldly wisdom won't have some true wisdom in it. That worldly wisdom will steal some true wisdom. That is true. But on, on par, when you put the two side by side, you will see that worldly wisdom will not, is mutually exclusive from, from true wisdom. And so let me just give you an example of this as we, we close here. Um, I want to just give you a little chart here of what I call best practices. The left-hand column is commonly assumed best practices. The right-hand column is the best biblical practices. So basically the best biblical practices are practices that are filtered through Scripture. So, for example, on this first point, uh, one of the common questions that people will ask today is what's in it for me or what's in it for us, referring to my team or my group. They're basically responding to a request by someone to do something, and they're they're wanting to know why should I do that because I'm interested in me and what's in it for me. And really, uh, from a biblical worldview, that's not even a relevant question. The only relevant question in any kind of request to do something is what's in it for God. Or what about this one? What's management all about? Well, if you ask the average business person, they would say, Management's about maximizing profit. That would be a very common answer. Biblically, we know management is about alignment with God. Different wisdom. Different answer. And they're mutually exclusive. If your, if your agenda is about money instead of God, you know this, you cannot worship God in money. It's not possible. You have to make a choice. And if you don't worship God, you're defaulting to money. And so, Management trying to focus on maximizing profit will exclude God. God will never be at the heart of that company. Or how about strategic planning is about capitalizing on the best opportunities to make money, very similar to the prior one, but we know biblically strategic planning is about discerning the will of God. Again, money and God are mutually exclusive, so those are irreconcilable. If you go into strategic planning looking for opportunities to make a bunch of money, you are not worshiping God. Money is success. That's worldly thinking. Biblically, obedience to God is success. Worldly, worldly thinking is hiring. is about finding the right people, which, okay, there's a level of truth in that. The problem is they don't know how to do that. You know, hiring is about finding and developing C4 people. Biblically, we know how to do that because we have the scriptures that's guided us into this principle that we can use now to find the right people. Or whatever you do, do it in private, it's okay, but at work, obey the code of conduct. That's the assumption you can bifurcate your life. That's the way the world thinks. Scripturally says, Scripture says, no, you can't bifurcate your life. Whatever you do in private, you will do at work. Faith without works is dead. You cannot say, I believe in the code of conduct, and then go live different than that code of conduct in your private life. That does not work. So, again, worldly thinking deceives us. Here's another one. This came up uh, this week with one of my clients. Don't sweat the small stuff. This is supposedly a comment that his company is projecting. And my comment to that is that is not true. We have to discern the level of detail that is significant to God. If you start putting that burden on us to figure out, decide what's, what the small stuff is, you're probably going to get misled. We have to ask God what is the level of significance he wants in any given work or situation. Or how about use rational empirical pragmatism to glean lessons from those you admire? 
This is how the world basically extracts the, the lessons they teach in the MBA programs. Now, biblically, we know we want to use the Bible as the foundation for all learning. We should be learning God's principles for business, God's principles for management, God's principles for parenting, God's principles for running churches, God's principles for running nations, God's principles of discipleship. This, you know, the Bible is a revelation about Christ, and it's the handbook for all of life. And then one last little one here. In fundraising, you must impart a sense of urgency. This is a big, big best practice in fundraising. But the reality is, since God funds his will, the way you properly, you know, get funded is you seek alignment with him because he funds it. You know, this is fascinating. When you begin to see this, say, wow, this fundraising techniques and the whole fundraising industry that's out there today becomes very suspicious or should be very suspicious to us because they are using worldly wisdom. They're not using biblical wisdom by and large. At least what I have seen of it and been exposed to it is not reflected biblical wisdom, even from those that focus on trying to help supposedly Christian organizations. So hopefully you can see this contrast between worldly wisdom and biblical wisdom. It's a stark contrast. It's very different thinking. And may the Lord give us all grace to learn to think biblically and be committed to always testing whatever people claim is their best practice against the standard of the truth of the Word of God. That is wise living. That is godly living. That is living under the Lordship of Christ. And may we have grace to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.